Half hour wasted presents Random Audio Files Episode 4. four, four, four. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. Okay, so this is Ken from the Legion of Dudes along with Russ. How are you? Good. And uh, so for our contribution to this week's show, we got to decide, since Russ and I are arguably the two biggest Star Wars fans on the Legion of Dudes, and just as big as uh, Brad is, you know, we were thinking, how sh- what, what should we do? And then we thought, let's put it to the test. Let's find out which one of us knows more about Star Wars. And we're finally going to do a little bit of Star Wars trivia. And so I brought out my book, Obsessed with Star Wars. Um, if you remember on Half Hour Wasted Parade, there's something similar with uh, uh, with Marvel, I think it was, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, basically this is a book of 14, 2,500 questions and a little computer that will tell me which question, which question to ask. And it's multiple choice, so I don't know what the answer is until I give it an answer, which means I can read the questions for both of us, and there's no fear of me cheating, uh, at least as far as Russ knows. Of, of course not. You're, you're, com- you're comfortable with that, Russ, right? Because, I mean, you can't see what I'm doing, of course, right? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's not like I've got my Trilla Pursuit cards with the answer on the back, and I can take a peek. <laughs> All right, so let's get started so we have uh, more time to, for, for trivia. Um, let's start by flipping a coin. And you call it in the air, Russ. Go. Tails. It is Tails. Would you like to go first now, or we're going to do two rounds. you want to go first this round, or first in the second round? I would like to go first in the second round, Ken. Okay. All right, so I will go first on this round. Question 282. Let me find that question here. Okay, so this is for me. 282. What droid repaired the shield generator on Queen Amidala's royal starship? The answers are the choices are A R four B nine, B R five D four, C R two D two, or D R four D two. I'm going to say that was C R two D two, and that's correct. One point for Ken. Did, did you even need the multiple choice for that one? I didn't, but I wanted our, our, our listeners to hear. <laughs> so, Rossi, I now I should, answer, should say that these are broken up by the six movies, but they're not just movie-related questions. So, 111 is Russ's question, which is still going to be in the Phantom Menace era. So, Russ, 111. Why did Darth Sidious send Darth Maul to kill Nymodian Hath Monchar prior to the Battle of Naboo? A, he stole the designs to build the battle droids. B, he discovered Darth Sidious's true identity. C, he was threatening to assassinate Newt Gunray. Or D, he fled the Trade Federation with information on Darth Sidious's invasion plans. Hmm. This sounds like EU stuff to me. Yeah, I'm going to say D. D. That is correct. He fled the Trade Federation with information on Darth Sidious' invasion plans. Congratulations. So we are tied up. That was a, that was a, that was a tough question. I, I think, I want to say that was the Darth from the Darth Maul miniseries comic. Oh, okay. Mistaken. That's a good place for it. 
Yeah. Uh, that would make sense because that definitely was in, a, in that area or included it. 762. Uh, you can play along if you uh, have this, but you're hearing a question. 762. This is for me. How did Obi-Wan Kenobi track the assassin droid who placed the Cohoons? Is that what they were called, really? In Senator Amidala's room. He, he grabbed it with his hands. B, he threw a homing beacon on it. C, he captured it in a net. Or D, he used the force. Uh, I believe it was A, he grabbed it with his hands. Correct. I remember he jumped out the window and grabbed it, right? Yep. Okay. For Russ now. 1008. Oh, this is Revenge of the Sith era. What color is Tal's fur? What color is Tal's fur? Black, white, gray, or brown? A, B, C, or D? White. Tal's fur is white. B. Yes, it is. What Who? What or who is Tal's? He, isn't, uh, <clears throat> isn't he one of those funky-looking creatures that is white with that snooty-looking nose-mouth thing? Maybe. I mean, I don't remember. I'm trying to think in the... the in that movie, or maybe that again, it could be EU. I'm not sure. I, th- I think that creature showed up in mm. even in um, the Cantina. Yeah, originally. that was that was where we first was seen a creature like that. It was a Cantina scene. Uh, Empire Strikes Back here for me, 1754. Which Imperial agents? Excuse me. Which Imperial? Impe- which Imperial appeared to agents and to Darth Vader only through a distorter and sent troops to Vorzid Five to capture Princess Leia and Luke Skywalker. Mara Jade, A, B, Black Hole, C, Prince Shizor, or D, General Veers. Which Imperial agent appear, which Imperial, which Imperial appear to agents and to Darth Vader? I'm going to say Prince Shizor. Oh, is incorrect. The answer is B, Black Hole. I know he was... All right, I don't know. I don't think that was really Empire era. That was from the Marvel comic. No, Black Hole was from the newspaper strip. Mm. <clears throat> That's where I know Black Hole from. Okay, we're going back to Fan Mesh. Number 31 for you. So I've got one wrong. Here's your chance to come ahead. Yay. 31. What ruler of Naboo did Queen Amidala replace? King Robina? B, King Flobanka? C, King Varuna? Or D, Queen Lemtuna. Oof. I'll guess D, but it's a total guess. You know, I would I would guess D as well because I thought she replaced a queen. I know she was succeeded by a queen. Yeah, co- that queen is Jamila. incorrect though. The answer is C, King Varuna. So still remain tied. Moving on to 1619 for me. Moving uh, up ahead into the original trilogy era, I believe. Uh, yes, yeah, still in the New Hope for 1619. Okay. Who said there will be no escape for the princess this time? A, C-3PO, B, Obi-Wan Kenobi, C, Darth Vader, or D, Luke Skywalker? That would be C, Darth Vader. It's incorrect! What? C-3PO. It was C-3PO. That was the correct answer. You're right. It was C-3PO, but you're right. Now I, now I know the line. I'm thinking from the beginning. All right. Oh, I know. I know what scene that is now. I'm, I mis, mis, mistook the quote. Ooh, that's what happens to get cocky. Okay, three ninety eight. Three ninety eight. 
How did Queen Amidala finally overtake the Viceroy and regain control of Theed? A. She got him to get his troops to run after her, leaving him unprotected so her decoy could arrest him. B. She cornered him. C. Her decoy tricked him into getting his troops to chase after her, leaving him unprotected. Or D. Her decoy cornered him. Do I me to read those again? Because some of them were complicated. No, I'm good. C. C. The answer is... C, correct. All right, you know what? I need a chance to tie or pull ahead. <clears throat> so we're going to do one more round of questions, you and me, and then we will come back for round two later. Okay. So 948 for me. 948. This is Revenge of the Sith era. Which Jedi was not killed by Chancellor Palpatine? Um, a, Agent Kolar. B, Kit Fisto. C, Eth Koth. Or D, Mace Windu. Okay, I know Kit Fistu and Mace Windu. I'm trying to think who the other two Jedi were there were with them. And it's a total guess because I don't know their names. And you probably know them, don't you? I think I know this one. Uh, I am... I'm going to say it was C. I say Koth. A. It was C. Ooh, it was C. Right. I was right. <clears throat> so round one, we're tied. You have one more question to try to keep the lead. 76, back to Phantom Menace. Man, that's like my era, I guess. I guess so. <clears throat> okay, you got to think about this. 76, right? Yes. How tall was Boss Nass? A, 2.08 meters. B, 1.99 meters. C, 2.06 meters. Or D, 2.02 meters. Oh my gosh, they're all like right in the range. So it's like... Unless you know what's that. Oof. How tall was Boss Nass? What, what, what were A and B again? Uh, A, 2.08. And B, 1.99. And then 06 and 02. I'm going to say B. B, 1.99 meters. Incorrect. Yeah. The oh. answer was C, 2.06. That was, who knows. Wow. Okay. So we're tied. With that, we are going to pause for more of your uh, Half Hour Wasted Legion of Dudes random audio file goodness. And we'll come back later in the show to do round two and to complete the challenge. The score stands tied at 3-3 three to three of Rusta Ken. So, so far, we are evenly matched. Every day, all over town, women have a question on their minds. What should I serve for dinner tonight? And every day, all over town, Colonel Sanders and his boys are cooking up the answer. Kentucky Fried Chicken. About a week ago, I was listening to the radio and I heard a story about a gentleman who's trying to start a museum devoted to the 8-track cassette. The 8-track cassette. I hadn't thought about that thing in years. It's kind of weird because it has a funny reputation. I mean, it's usually it's usually thought of as kind of a, a old or archaic type of technology. 
I decided to go out and find a cassette, since being I hadn't seen one in a while. And I went to a couple of half-price bookstores, and uh, it took. It wasn't until the second one that I was able to find one. And in my hand, I'm holding one. Holding it, it's it's kind of interesting to think that this cartridge, which is smaller than a paperback book, allowed us to listen to music portably. I mean, this is a predecessor to the cassette. This is a predecessor to the CD. This is the predecessor to the iPod. This allowed us to take music, not just not just listen to it on the radio, but take it with us. Not just listen to it on an LP at home, but to take it with us while we drive. This allowed us, if you had a recordable one, to make a mixtape for someone. The 8-track, while it is quaint, was the predecessor to things that we all know and love regarding music and how it affects our lives. We are now ones that that can create our own soundtrack and aren't subjugated to the soundtrack that's created on the radio when we're out and about. So, looking at the cassette, I'm holding it right here. It has kind of a sound, it has an interesting sound to it. You can hear the you can hear the uh the tape mechanism in there. It's kind of funny how this piece of technology at one point was the be-all, end-all when it came to music, but the cassette itself has an interesting history. For one thing, it was developed by Learjet, the same people who make the the Learjet that rich people fly around in. They developed the technology to create this eight track this cassette that you could take with you and listen to music while on the road or wherever you wanted to be there was a whole bunch of organizations that worked along with Learjet to make this thing happen Ampex Ford Motor Company General Motors RCA a whole bunch of companies got together to create this new experience in listening to music just a few facts about it. Um, the way the cassette works, if you're not familiar with it, if you were to pop one open, you would find that there's just um, a piece of cassette tape that kind of is wound upon itself. So it creates this endless loop of music. That's why there was never any rewinding involved or needed. You could fast forward them, but it was usually to your demise because they didn't fast forward very well. 8-tracks usually could only hold about 46 minutes of content, so that came out to about 11 half minutes per track. The way the 8-track worked was it would uh, play two tracks at a time. There'd be a piece of metal foil keeping the spliced audio tape together, and that foil created a circuit on the audio head, causing it to change tracks to the next section. So you would go from track one, two stereo tracks, to track two, two stereo tracks, to track three, three stereo tracks, and so on. The most annoying feature in its charm at the same time is that while the music played many times because of its limitation, because of its maximum 11, 11 minutes and 11 and a half minutes worth of audio, sometimes the music might dip down, you'd hear a clack, and then the song would dip back up we can still come through 
still, it was because of this piece of technology, because this piece of plastic, it really did, believe it or not, revolutionize the way we listen to music. It allowed us to take it with us. And we weren't subjugated to what was on the radio. We could now create the soundtracks of our life. Now, like with any type of new technology, there were also um, accessories you could get. One of the more, um, there were head cleaners, but one of the more interesting ones I found was a cassette uh that you could actually plug into your A-Track, and then it had four inputs for instruments that you could put in. Use your stereo as a PA system for your instruments. So I guess this is just a love letter, a love letter to the 8-track. Because while it it is an endearing and annoying piece of uh, of musical technology history, it it did usher the way to cassettes, to Walkmans, to iPods to CDs, to digital music, to the 8-track. In February of this year, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, the most expensive show in Broadway history, will finally open. Probably. The show has experienced setbacks, both monetary and physical, since its inception several years ago. Recently, I was able to attend a preview screening of the show, and while I can't in good conscience endorse the product, I can say that it wasn't all bad. I've already podcasted my thoughts to an extent, but I thought I'd take this time to give you a full review. Visually, Turn Off the Dark is a masterpiece. I can honestly say I've never seen anything like it. The sets and designs, lights and the costumes, all work together to create a unique visual experience that both honored the comics that came before it, and created something entirely new. To an extent, the show both lives and dies on the amazing stunts created for the experience. If you've paid attention to the news at all in recent weeks, you've probably heard stories about stops and starts in the show, performers trapped in stunt harnesses suspended above the audience, and even some of the horrific injuries that have occurred. At the preview show I attended, there were no technical mishaps or injuries of any type. In fact, the stunts went off without a hitch, and I can really say that when they work... They're amazing. Spider-Man swings over the heads of the audience, dazzling those in attendance. The Green Goblin swoops in and the two trade kicks and punches as the audience looks on above them. The equipment they use to allow themselves to fight over the audience is actually the same used by the NFL in its camera systems. If you've ever watched a game on TV and noticed a shot taking place from directly above the field, or glimpsed the tiny camera zipping above the field, left, right, forwards, and backwards on a complex rigging mechanism, you've seen the exact same technology that allows Spider-Man and the Green Goblin to fight, fly away from each other, come back, and trade more blows above the audience. The level of control present is simply amazing. The sets are angular and jagged. They're meant to evoke both the feeling of the buildings of New York and the panels of a comic book. In the same way, they play with perspective like an M.C. Escher work might. Without a word of dialogue even being spoken, one can tell if there's simply something different going on in this show. It just feels special. Even the character designs are bright and bombastic. It feels like a comic book come to life through the lens of Broadway. Spider-Man looks like Spider-Man. More specifically, he looks just like the movie Spider-Man, right down to the raised webbing on his costume. His villains, however, are all more exaggerated. You may have seen preview pictures that were released from the show. 
showing the Green Goblin, Carnage, a new villain named Swiss Miss, and these images may or may not have worked for you. All I can say is that in the context of the show, the designs actually work quite well. From a distance, they convey movement, and their exaggerated features make it clear which villain is which, even to someone who's never read the comics. But for those who have read the comics, the costumes and character designs clearly display a sense of personality of the characters and a sense of tone for the overall show. And that tone, at least in the parts of the story that convey it well, is that Spider-Man is fun. He's amazing. He's spectacular. He's your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. But unfortunately, where the show falls apart is in the story. Now that's right, the story. Pretty much the one place that no one pointed to when listing reasons that Spider-Man on Broadway might not be a good idea. And reasons not to do the show were in abundance. It's cost a reported $65 million to produce thus far. The stunts are difficult and dangerous to pull off. Comic book fans are often overly protective of their favorite characters and vehemently anti-Broadway. And bringing a character like Spider-Man to Broadway is simply uncharted territory. But these major problems that were raised have been to a large extent overcome. Enough backers have been found to cover the initial production costs. The amazing stunts have proved to be realistic and doable. Yes, there have been injuries, but they seem to have been worked out of the show. Even the recent 30-foot fall wasn't the result of a tricky rigging or of a high-flying maneuver. It was simply a stuntman who forgot to check his harness before he walked to the end of a platform. So it wasn't the money, and it wasn't the stunts, but the story where the show really falters. The one place where, quite honestly, it should have worked. It really should have. As a warning, spoilers for the story will follow, but if you've read many Spider-Man comics or have seen the movies, you already know most of it. In fact, the parts you won't know from that are simply the parts that didn't work. The story is split into two sections, one before in the intermission and one after. And quite honestly, the one before the intermission... It worked fairly well. The framing device used in the first half of the show is that four high school students are refilming the origin of Spider-Man for a school project. They debate which villains are best, which version of the origin story to use, even which parts of which stories are still canon and which aren't. It feels and sounds pretty much just like any other conversation about Spider-Man that's ever taken place at a local comic shop. Framing the story with these four characters, collectively known as the Geek Chorus, allows the action to start and stop in quite an interesting way. It allows them to pause the story and jump in at any point. Was that line quite right? Did that scene play out just that way in the comics? By using the Geek Chorus, the writers can stop and comment on any point along the show and point out why it does or doesn't work in the minds of these four characters. It's a fun way to break the fourth wall and point out some of the more ridiculous points of the story and the ones that the kids think they might be able to make better in their version. This isn't the official canon 616 backstory of Spider-Man, and everyone involved knows it, and they want to make it clear that they're not trying to trample on the legacy, but rather have fun doing their own version. And that part of the show works quite well. That's not to say that every element of the first half of the show works, some songs went on too long, certain characterization, especially Aunt May's, just didn't work. But others, like the Green Goblin, for instance, I thought went over extremely well. In the Geek Chorus's version of the Spider-Man story, Peter Parker was not bitten entirely by chance. The spider was actually motivated by the Greek goddess Arachne. This is not an entirely new concept to Spider-Man readers, but the specifics have been changed slightly. In the first half, though, the inclusion of Arachne, for the most part, fits. 
It allows the chorus to draw from Greek mythology and compare our modern fictional heroes to those of old. But most importantly, that element doesn't dominate the story. The first half is very simple. Spider-Man is created, the Green Goblin is created, they fight for New York, Mary Jane is in peril, and in the end of the first act, Spider-Man saves her and defeats the Green Goblin. And it's all, or mostly, downhill from there. When we rejoin the story after intermission, Peter's facing his age-old problem. How can he properly budget his time between saving New York and spending time with Aunt May and Mary Jane? After a series of events, we get a very well-done rendition of Spider-Man walking away with his costume hanging out of a trash can. He is Spider-Man no more. And that's where things get weird. It seems Arachne is not happy that Peter Parker has forsaken Spider-Man. Apparently, if he remains Spider-Man, at some point, she can finally be forgiven, or finally die, or finally pass on, or something. It's not entirely clear. But if he is Spider-Man no more, she loses her only chance at redemption, or whatever it is she's trying to get to. So within the story, which, let me remind you, is a recreation of Spider-Man created by four high school students, Arachne takes over. And I don't mean she just takes over inside their head. She shows up on stage with them and kicks them out of their own version of the story. In fact, to my recollection, we never see the four characters again. Their framing element is completely forgotten at about two-thirds into the show, and Arachne is in control for the remainder of the production. And at this point, the story devolves into a horrible, nonsensical mess. As I've already indicated, Arachne's intentions are not clear. Nor is it clear why she has an entourage of demonic succubi spiders, or why they sing a song about the shoes that they've stolen. Seriously. Also bewildering is the scene in which Arachne comes to Peter while he's asleep, and the two float above the stage. What are they doing exactly? It's not clear. Why are they floating in some strange tantric trance? Why is she singing to him about turning off the dark? I couldn't tell you. I still couldn't even tell you what the phrase turning off the dark means in the context of the show. Alongside this, an entire rogues gallery of Spider-Man's villains attack. They take over New York, plunging the entire city into a post-apocalyptic nightmare. Eventually, Peter is forced to relent and become Spider-Man again. He fights the villain Arachne, only to discover eventually that all the other villains are simply figments of his imagination. They've been placed there by Arachne herself. Essentially, three-quarters of the second act don't even actually happen. And no, I'm not talking a deal with Mephisto here. It just all takes place in Spider-Man's head. But we're left with Peter as Spider-Man. Mary Jane apparently knows that he is Spider-Man, even though it's never made clear in the show until the very end. And the banner drops from the ceiling, proclaiming Spider-Man, with an image emblazoned on it of our main character. That's right, the show pretty much just ends. There's not really any resolution. It's not clear what really happened. Plot threads just seem to be dropped. It was, in short, a mess. Now, to be fair to the producers and writers of the show, they know that it's a mess at the end, and they've brought back Bono and the Edge to compose more music for the end, and they're retooling the last section of the story. But honestly, without retooling almost the entirety of the second act, I'm not sure how they're ever going to pull it off. Yes, I think the show will see the light of day, and by all accounts, it's fairly successful so far, but only monetarily, certainly not when it comes to narrative. So if you're really interested in seeing the show, 
If you're a fan of Peter Parker and Spider-Man, you'll probably enjoy at least the first half. My advice, go to the show and leave at the intermission. Treat yourself to a nice dinner. Hopefully, if this show does turn out to be, in the long run, a complete financial success, we'll try it again someday, and this time, get a better story. Because the stunts are there. They work. Technically, they can pull it off. I just wish the show had a story to support it. Oh well, I guess that's just the Parker luck. So, help spread the word. Come on, never be a dirty bird. So welcome back to part two of this random audio file segment of Ken versus Russ in Star Wars trivia. When you last left us, we were tied three to three in our five rounds of questioning. And uh, so this round, I believe I get to go first. That's right. You picked it on your on the coin toss. So you get to go first. So we are going to go ahead. Uh, I, I, you know, I didn't even keep check. How many did we actually ask that last round? Five. We did five rounds. Five rounds of back and forth we did? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay, so we'll try to do the same thing here. Okay, we're getting Russ's question to lead us off. Okay, 1953, we're moving up ahead. 1953, we gotta be in Jedi by now. No, we're still in the Empire Strikes Back, actually. 1953, which droid served as droid coordinator in Echo Base? A, C-3PO. B, R2-D2. C, K-3PO. Or D, FX7? I'm going to say C. C, K3PO, which would have been my guess as well. And the answer is... The answer is C. Russ takes... FX7 was the uh, medical guy. Yeah, and we know the other two. Yeah. So I'm going to 510. 510, I'm going to attack at the clones... Who told Anakin Skywalker that he was the most gifted Jedi he had ever met? Obi-Wan Kenobi, B. Yoda, C. Chancellor Palpatine, or D. Mace Windu? I believe that would have been Chancellor Palpatine. And it's not! I can't get these easy ones. C. Yoda. In Attack of the Clones, Yoda said that Anakin was the gifted Jedi. Okay, I got it wrong. Did you know that, Russ? I did not. I don't recall that line. I don't either. I know that's not something Palpatine would have said. And he probably yeah. did say something similar. Just in a more manipulative way. 665. 665. Uh, this is again from of the Clones era. What did Anakin Skywalker encounter on the edge of the Western Dune Sea? Uh, a, a, sand, a Jawa sand crawler caravan. B, a Tusken Raider camp. C, a Sarlacc pit, or D, three dead farmers? B. B, a Tuscan raider camp. No. Ooh. The answer is A. Of the Sandcrawler? A Jawa oh. Sandcrawler caravan. That's right. That was his first stop. Alrighty. So this is, we're still, this is still part of round two, right? Yes. 339. 339 for me. 339. 
This is from Phantom Menace. What does the Republic Cruiser's red color signify? Its political neutrality, its use as a hospital ship, its allegiance with the Jedi, or its allegiance with the Trade Federation. All right, let me think this through. It's not D. It could be A, because they were on a diplomatic mission. It could be C, because it was carrying Jedi. Don't believe it was a hospital ship. I'm going to say it, A, it's political... Oh, hmm. No, I'm going to go C, Jedi. No, it's going to be A, then. It, it was A, it's political neutrality. Yeah, that was tough. You know, yes. Because cause there's plenty of Republic cruisers that have, that have red as well. That don't care. I mean, maybe, I don't know. Okay, this is definitely going to be Jedi era because we were jumping way ahead to 2486. There's only 2,500 questions, so 2486 for Russ. This should be a gimme. Who is director of Return of the Jedi? A. George Lucas. B. Ir- uh, Irving Kirshner. C. David Lynch. Or D. Richard Marquand. Marquand. D. D. Richard Marquand. D. Richard Marquand. That is correct. It was almost David Lynch. It was almost David Lynch, really. Mm-hmm. I did not know that. Wow, I'm sucking it up here. That was this is round three now, right? Uh, yeah. So wow, yeah. I can't, I can't, I can't screw up if I want to get this. You can get a chance to tie this. <clears throat> Twelve twenty-seven. This is embarrassing. <laughs> I still want to see uh, you and me against Brad and Ashley. No, I actually kick our ass. We can't. We can't do that. Huh? <laughs> uh, 12, 12, 1227. 1227, this is Revenge of the Sith. Who did General Grievous contact upon landing on Utapau? A, Count Dooku. B, Darth Tyrannus. D, C, Tyan Midan. Or D, Darth Sidious. Uh, General Grievous contacted... I believe he immediately contacted Darth Sidious. And that would be correct. The big brain on can here. Okay. Yeah. Yay, I'm back on the board. Still down by one. 232 for Russ. 232. Yeah. 232 from the Phantom Menacera. How large can a male Sando Aqua Monsters grow? A. 200 meters long. B. 350 meters long. C. 50 meters long. Or D. 10 meters long. Male Sando Aqua Monster. Uh, B. B, 350 meters long. Is that a guess, or do you know that? That's an absolute guess. It would be wrong. Yes. The answer would be A, 200 meters long. Oh. Now, what is that? That wouldn't be a crate Dragon, would it? That would be something else, No, right? that was... Since it was Phantom Menace, that would have been the thing that ate the thing that... that the oh. tongue... Remember the tongue went yeah, out of the ship? Yeah, always, always a bigger fish. A bigger fish. Yeah, there you go. Because uh, I remember the thing of the Tatooine scenes. Two, 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 eight. 2,228 from Return of the Jedi. Which species are sentient planarian hunter-gatherers? Uh, Shadow Ub, the Clatonians, the Faleen, or the Imani? Oh, gosh. It's not the Faleen. Could it be the Clatonians? Gosh, it's tough, I guess. Well, B and C is the only two I've heard of, but I don't know what the Clatonians really were. Yeah, I'll go Clatuinians. No, it's not. It's D, the Amanin. The Amanin. You know that one? Mm-mm. All right, this is our last round. At best, I can tie, but 
if Rus if Rusk you get this right, you win. Oh wait, what was the last question? It was the what species are sentient planarian hunter gatherers? Oh, the Amonians. They're not the no. They're not the one. No, I'm thinking of the wrong wrong ones. Yeah. Okay, five twenty one to win to lock it up. Best I can tie. You win. You get this right. You, you flat out win. What was the Jedi Council member Coleman Treber's homeworld? Was it A. Naboo, B. Coruscant, C. Surya, or D. Assembla? This is from Attack of the Clones. Oof. Jedi Council member Coleman Trebor. What were the answers again? A. Naboo, B. Coruscant, D. Surya, C. E. R. E. A, or D. Assembla? I'm going to guess with C. C. Guess them with C. Incorrect. Answer is D. Sembla. Okay, two win or two tie. <laughs> That's sad. The best I can do is tie, but hey, whatever. That just means you bo will both get as many wrong as we got right uh, as the other one. Twenty-one twenty-nine, which is Return of the Jedi. Twenty-one twenty-nine. What did Luke Skywalker need to do in order to complete his training and become a Jedi Knight, according to Master Yoda? Da -da -da -da, according to Yoda. A. Levitate an X-Wing out of the swamp. B. Confront Darth Vader again. C. Destroy the Emperor. Or D. Study the holocrons in Yoda's hut. I've had two gimmies that I got wrong. I'm going to take a moment and think it through and be sure I'm correct when I say B. Confront Darth Vader again. And that is correct. Ooh, we are tied. So, with a goal set up to find out who was the better player, the better in knowledge, we end up a draw. So, um, we hope you enjoy this teaser, and maybe one day we will get a chance to do some more trivia um, with more men, more people on the team, or maybe Pratt or other members of the Legion of Dudes. But I thought this was a fun way to spend some time, don't you, Russ? I agree. Okay. So these questions are a lot tougher than I thought they were. I I know. Like I said, when I first got this and started just going through the book on my own, letting the computer keep track, I was running a good 50%. And I'm talking, that's with like, you know, several, like almost 100 questions answered. I was running 50%. Wow. Yeah, exactly. So it's, um, they're not easy. But like I said, there's a lot of EU stuff. It's still in that time frame. But if you're not up on all that EU stuff that came out, it, it could get you. So um, five to five <laughs> is what I got. Yep. All right. Well, with that, I'll let you back. Let everybody get back to their random audio files, and we will see you uh, on the next Legion of Dudes. Thanks. The Human Torch was denied a bank loan.